Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 103. Damn. I still don't know how to say it. 103, 103, nothing feels right. 103. 103. I don't know. That's weird. It's like you're writing a check. I'm just going to keep changing it until something feels right. All right. Okay. So, a little bit of business. Y'all remember how last year we went to the True Crime Podcast Festival when it was in Chicago? Yes. Okay. Well, this year we're going again, and this time it's in Kansas City. I know we've already talked about it, but, you know, maybe some new people listening and they've never heard of the True Crime Podcast Festival. So, we will be there the weekend of July 11th. So mark your calendars, go on over to the True Crime Podcast Festival website, sign up, and guess what? What? We got a promo code. We got a promo code. And the promo code is CHICKS. So if you sign up, you're there to see us, use the promo CHICKS. It helps them know like what podcast we're bringing people in and, you know, I don't know, behind the scenes shit I don't understand. Yeah, data. And... Use it. (laughs) And be there. Or be square. We want y'all to come so bad. We had so much fun last year, even though I was still dying. Please. It's going to be so much better this time. Because I won't be on a scooter, and I won't be on IV antibiotics. Oh, my gosh. You are a trooper. I would be like, hold, please. Let me run up to my room and give myself (laughs) my fucking antibiotics. (sighs) So it's going to be so much fun. I'm going to actually be able to stand up this time. Yeah. (laughs) I mean... I don't know what we would have done last year without Creep Mom there to like. Oh my gosh. She was like my legs to run places. Mm -hmm. She took pictures. She hung stuff up. She did everything I couldn't do. Yeah. She and the Homance girls helped us stuff our little. (laughs) Who are you calling little? (laughs) Oh my God. But, well, stuff our little goodies that we passed out. Not drugs. For free. For free. (laughs) We were giving them away for free. So we really want y'all to come. You, It's kind of like, well, last year it was kind of expo style. Walk around, meet all the different podcasters that are there. Some really great podcasts are going to be there. There's a list on the website so you can check them all out. There will be some live shows. Just, I mean, some great stuff. So check it out. Come see us. If you go and you buy tickets, use promo code CHICKS. Well, some other big news that we have. New Patreoners. Fanfare. Insert here. Oh, so you mean people like Jackie K from Georgia? Alexis F. from Arizona. Alexandra W. from Missouri. Lee B. from Ohio. Sammy B. from Indiana. And Karen M., who's also from Ohio. Oh, these Ohioans. Oh, hi. Oh, do you remember that guy that I used to follow all the friggin' time, Chris Crocker? Mm-hmm. He was on my stories yesterday when I was reading them. Really? Reading them. Oh, Lord. You sound like me with TikTok. Y'all, Donna is fucking obsessed right now. I blame it all on Kristen. Hold on. We'll get to that. That, oh, hi, that reminded me of Chris when he would uh, dress. He would dress like a woman, but I don't know... If it was a British or just like a she-she version or whatever, but they'd be tending to the garden, but not really tending mm-hmm. to the garden. And he'd be like, 
oh, hi there. Oh, hi. Didn't see you there. Yes. And go in, oh, my God, I always love those. Anyway, if y'all have not saw any of his videos, hilarious. Yes, he really is. All right. My story this week isn't too far in the past. It actually happened in March of 2005. And it happened in Dublin, Ireland. Ooh, across the pond. I'm doing the story of the Scissor Sisters. Not, the porn. No, yes, I was about to say, not to be confused with the porn or a band. I had to be careful Googling this at work. Right? <laughs> I was on my lunch break. <laughs> so the Scissor Sisters are actually Charlotte and Linda Mulhall. So now that we know who the Scissor Sisters are, let's back up a little bit and talk about their mother. So Kathleen, who was the girl's mother, growing up, lived in a house with an abusive father and mother. Her father was an alcoholic that just was very, very abusive. When Kathleen was 16, she got pregnant by a guy by the name of John. And when he proposed, she was like, absolutely, get me out of this house. So they got married. And that's when she became Kathleen Mulhall. She and John went on to have six kids together. They had three girls and three boys. And while everything started off pretty good, it didn't take long for things to take a dark turn. He was very abusive to her, but she never pressed charges on him or anything. You know, yeah, there were some, there's a, there was a paper trail, but it, was, it wasn't from her like getting a protective order or pressing charges or anything like that. Well, when two of the kids were grown and out of the house, but four of them were still minors, despite the fact that, you know, all of the abuse, they were still married. And then Kathleen found out that John had been having affairs this whole time. This whole time that he's been abusing her. Uh-huh. Having kids with her. Uh-huh. And having an affair. Uh-huh. And she's like, fuck you. I'm done. You know, like, this is, after all this, all these, all this time, all this abuse, having your kids, staying at home with them since she's 16, you know, and he's been having affairs this whole time. So she says, get your shit and move out. And he says, uh, fuck no. I pay all the bills in this house. I'm staying. If you want out, you go. Well, again, she's been with him since she's 16. So she hasn't had a job this whole time. And so she's like, well, I'm fucked. You know, I guess I got to stay. So Kathleen decides that the marriage is basically over. He won't move out, but she can't afford to move out, especially with, like I said, four kids still at home. So she's like, fuck it. So she starts going out, hanging out with friends, hanging out with one of her daughters that's, you know, grown up and moved out, you know, in her 20s. They go out to bars and stuff, hang out. One night, she's at the bar with her daughter, Linda, and she sees this guy across the bar talking to Linda's boyfriend. And she's like, Linda, who the fuck is that? He cute. And Linda's like, well, I don't know. You know, he I've seen him here. He kind of hangs out with, you know, with the people my age. I don't really know much about him. And so, you know, they do like the, hey, hey, you know, and then they meet and that's all she wrote. Well, the guy that she met at the bar was... Farah Noor. So I'm going to call him Noor from here on out. Well, I found a couple of things about Noor. 
about the way that he came to be in Ireland. One thing said that he was a Somalian national seeking political asylum and that he had gone to Kenya originally, but the refugee camps basically weren't safe for him because he was interracial. And so it wasn't safe for him. And so he paid somebody to basically smuggle him into Ireland and then sought political asylum. However, what I think might be the actual story is that he was actually from Kenya and came to Ireland, like flew in a plane, landed in the airport and changed his name to Farah Noor. And I'm going to butcher his original name. So I'm not, I, I, well, I'll try it, but I'm going to probably butcher it. He changed it from Salila Syed Salim. I'm sorry if I butchered that. Anyway, so changed his name and said that he was a Somalian national wanting political asylum. But really and truly, he had a wife and three kids in Kenya that he just left. What the hell? Yeah. And so his wife and three kids thought like, okay, he's going to go to Ireland and then one day he's going to send for us. Well, spoiler alert, he didn't. Well, in 1999, he was given refugee status, and when he met Kathleen, he had applied for Irish citizenship and was just, like, waiting on that to go through. I don't understand how he can, like, just wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, change his identity and start this new life, and when I forget my password, I get locked out of my bank account after five tries. Mm-hmm. And this is, like... In 1999. So it's not like it's yeah. in 1956. You know right. what I mean? So flashback to Kathleen meeting Noor in the bar. They're smitten with each other. And she's like, I want to be with him. Like, it's time for me to finally get a divorce from John. And so she's like, well, okay, what do I do? Because John is not going to leave the house. You know, he, he feels like it's his both of their names is on it, but he's like, I'm not going anywhere. I pay the bills. And so she's like, how the fuck can I get him out? And she's like, I got a paper trail of all the abuse. Again, she hadn't pressed charges or anything, but there was a paper trail from like doctor's visits, that kind of thing. So she took out a protective order against John and he was immediately required to leave the house. So at this point, there were only two kids that still lived at home And they both were like, fuck you, mom. I'm going with dad. And so she and Noor basically had the house to themselves because all of her children, except for her daughter, Charlotte, all abandoned her and was like, I can't believe you're doing this to my dad. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, again, this kind of paints him in a good light. Like she did him dirty. But I mean, he abused her for decades. Let's not let's not forget that. You know, I'm not saying her all of a sudden wanting the house and so getting a protective order against him was right or wrong, not my place. It don't matter what I think about that. But let's not forget that she that she had been abused for fucking two decades, at least. So while Kathleen and Noor are living in what was her family home, they're strapped for cash. He has a job kind of like a like a temp type agency where he just kind of does like random things for random places. And 
she wasn't working. I think she was actually on government assistance. And so Kathleen's like, okay, Nora and I will move out of the house if John sells it because they're both on it. So if John sells it, they both get a little bit of money and be done with it, you know? So she and Nora actually moved to Cork. And as soon as they moved there, John moves back in the fucking house and is like, I'm not selling this, you know, like, okay. So she and Nora live in Cork for a couple years. And while they're there, she starts to realize how bad it really is with Nor, because, you know, they were known to be partiers together and lots of drinking, lots of well, partying. And while Nor was sober, he was this great guy, allegedly, who left alleged wife and kids in fucking Kenya, but whatever. But when he drank, he was mean, very mean. And the more he drank, the meaner he got. And he loved to drink. And they drank together. I mean, it was a toxic situation. He pushed her buttons, she pushed his buttons, and it always led to some sort of domestic violence situation. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. To the point where it's said that Kathleen actually worked as a sex worker sometimes to get money because they drank so much. He would miss work a lot because, you know, they were on these benders and, you know, they just, they couldn't make ends meet. I have so much anxiety about my day to day. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, I I, I can't fathom. Not knowing where any money's going to come from ever. Yeah. I know. When I watch stuff like on, like that documentary I watched on Pazuzu, that guy that I did mm-hmm. on episode 100. And, you know, this story and just like on that, like on that show Intervention, when people have serious drug problems where they're always trying to get money because they can't hold down the job. And, you know, there's no, no steady income and they're always in the search for money to eat or to buy more drugs or whatever. And it's like that's desperation and that not knowing where it's going to come from gives me so much anxiety it makes my stomach hurt i yeah like i it's like a my whole body almost goes into an anxiety attack just feeling their fear yeah and their uncertainty yes oh my gosh very thankful that i don't have to worry about that yes even though I still have anxiety about... Oh, about money and stuff, yeah. yes. But we are lucky that we don't have the the added... Right. ...substance abuse, you know, that's yeah. just... It, God bless it. So, Nor is becoming increasingly more abusive and increasingly more controlling. He's reading her text messages. He's, you know, just checking her phone, wants to know where she's going all the time. So in order to know where she's going all the time, he starts locking her in the apartment. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. Well, so it was so he would know exactly where she was. And she knows it's bad, but she's scared to leave. Again, with the uncertainty, it's like she'd rather be with the devil she knows than the devil she doesn't know. Oh, absolutely. Well, and she just has such a history of abuse her entire life. And so... I mean, we know the psychological component of, 
you know, blaming yourself and thinking that the ways that you do things, if you change them, it won't be that way. And then just, just the cycle of abuse. We, we understand so much more now. So you have to think about it. She was abused by both of her parents. She got married when she was 16 because she was pregnant to a guy that she thought was going to save her, who started to abuse her as well. Then he abused her for decades. She falls for this other young guy that she thinks is going to be her ticket out from John and she thinks, you know, nor, and then she gets with him and he is abusive as well. It's almost like the abuse is only escalating too. Yeah. So it's just, no wonder she doesn't feel like she can get out. It's all she knows. Well, life was not better for them in Cork. And so she and nor decided to move back to Dublin. When they moved back, the abuse did not stop. And Kathleen actually found one of Noor's ex-girlfriend's phone numbers in his phone. And so she decided to call her. She knew that they had a kid together. And so she was like, I'm going to call her and just see what she has to say. So Cole called this poor girl. And when she answers, Kathleen says, hey, you know, I'm Kathleen. I'm in a relationship with Farah Noor. This is what's going on. Did he abuse you too? And also, this girl's name has never been released. And she was like, yeah, I was. And Kathleen's like, do you have any advice? And she says, run. Get out now. And so, this poor girl, we're going to call her Dorothy. Dorothy, this poor girl, was 16, just like Kathleen was when Kathleen met John. Dorothy was 16 when she met Farah Noor. Got pregnant by him. They started living together. Three months after the baby was born, the abuse started. And the abuse was so horrific. He verbally abused her. He physically abused her. He sexually abused her. If he wanted to have sex and she didn't, he raped her. It was awful. She left him two times before they actually got a roommate to help with the bills. And this roommate that they had, we'll call her Rose. We don't know her name either. Rose was only there a couple of weeks before Noor got so drunk that he abused Dorothy in front of the the new roommate. And she was like, I'm fucking out and you need to come with me. Dorothy's like, I I can't. Like, he's going to find me. You know, she tried to leave twice before. She was like, I I can't. So, not long after that, Rose ended up calling Dorothy's parents. And they had no idea. because Because she was so ashamed. And, And... she shouldn't have been because she she's not guilty of anything. He right. is. I mean, God bless her. But again, we understand the thought process and the, you know, why she felt that way. But so her parents were like, come the fuck home. We're coming to get you. And they went and got her and her kid. Oh, good. Well, this sent Nor into a tailspin. He was calling and threatening and doing all this stuff. He had like every other Sunday visitation with the son and he would do that. Like he would use that to try to like continue to abuse her and, you know, just the mind games and the anxiety and the stalking and the, all the things. And one day it just stopped. 
And it stopped because he met Kathleen. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So when Kathleen calls, she tells her all this and she's like, you need to get out. You need to get out now while you're still alive. You in danger, girl. Yes. So Kathleen starts to make a plan and she's like, okay, I'm going to get out. I'm going to get out. I'm going to, you know, go to a safe house kind of thing. Like, okay. Sidebar, I want to say that fake Dorothy, that's not a real name, but she left three times. I want to point out that it takes an... The average number of times that a victim of domestic abuse leaves their partners before they leave for good is seven times. So mm. she left early. Yeah. I think I think what's a case like this, it's so important to hold back judgment on people who are victims of abuse because you truly don't understand it until you've lived it. Yeah. I. Mm-mm. Or, and even truly known someone that's gone through it and know the type of person that they are and the strength that they have and the fact that they had such a hard time getting out of it, it kind of helps put it into perspective, I think. So while Kathleen's kind of getting her ducks in a row to to try and leave him, we are back into March of 2005 and it's the weekend of St. Patrick's Day. Nor was on a bender and had missed a couple of days of work. And so, like, they were calling and, like, hey, he missed work, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, Kathleen lies for him to say, like, oh, his daughter's sick. That's why he's missing work. Even though it was because he was so drunk he couldn't go. So that just kind of paints a picture of how much drinking was going on at this point in time. Two of Kathleen's daughters were with her. Charlotte who was 23, and Linda, who's 31. They were out with their mom, drinking. They had actually done some ecstasy, too. Just a little bit about Linda and Charlotte. So, Linda was, like I said, 30, 31 years old, and she already had four kids. She was also the victim of domestic violence. So, because of the domestic violence, she had lost custody for the, her kids for a little while. And her boyfriend had gone to jail for seven years. Fuck. Yes. And she had a history of substance abuse with alcohol and heroin. So Charlotte also had a history of substance abuse with alcohol and other drugs. She had a few, like... Little criminal charges, nothing like super bad, but she was actually a sex worker too and and is allegedly who like introduced her mom, Kathleen, to it to help her and Nor get more money. I feel so bad for this whole family. Mm-hmm. It was like none of them stood a chance. Right. Okay, so now we're back to March 20th, 2005. So Linda and the, you know, one of the daughters... And Nor, they're sitting on this couch and just like a little two-seater thing. And Charlotte's sitting on the arm when Nor starts like filling Linda up. No. Uh-huh. What the fuck? Uh-huh. And so when he's like filling her up, he like leans over and like puts his arm around her waist and like whispers some inappropriate sexual shit in her ear. And so Kathleen's like... Fuck you. Get your fucking hands off of my fucking daughter. 
Yes, it deserved all those fuckings. Yes. The audacity. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, instigates Nor, and he's arguing back, and it's just this back and forth, back and forth. And they're all so fucked up on alcohol and drugs. Charlotte picks up a knife and cuts Nor across the throat, and it makes him just immediately fall to the ground. Like a slice or like a not like like a like a like an in between okay like a he's not dead but uh he's on his way okay then linda gets a hammer and she starts hitting him in the head with it he ended up being stabbed 27 times damn so like this one article says it may have been more, but pathologists had no opportunity to examine the full body. Dun, dun, dun. Because? So, Linda and Charlotte take him into the bathroom Ugh. after he's dead and start to dismember him. Fuck! They cut off his head, his arms. Which head first? His head head and then his little head. Mm. Yeah, they castrated him. I mean, if that is not some psychological like damn all of their like all of their all of their abuse culminated yeah into him yeah it took them hours to dismember his body oh my gosh they put all the different body parts into black plastic bags while kathleen didn't help them kill him she did help them clean it up so she's an accomplice yeah because she helped yeah so all three of them Multiple trips, multiple different bags, take his body to the Royal Canal to dispose of it. But the head, they put in Linda's son's backpack. Backpack, backpack. <laughs> took the head. Okay. Oh, sorry. Took the head in the backpack on a bus to Talgut. Hope I said that right. Where they walked around this shopping, like, little center thing for a while. It kept walking, kept walking, looking for a place to dispose of the head. Until Charlotte decided just to go to this park, dug a hole with a knife, and buried the head there. Well, over the next few days, Linda's like, I got something's telling me to go back. So she goes back. She dug up the head and took it to another field, like, in the same area. And it said that... Because remember, it's in her son's school bag. She said that she, quote, kissed the bag and told Farah I was sorry. Uh, why? Well, she said that she stayed out in that field for a really long time, drinking. She drank a whole bottle of vodka. Don't drink on the job. Like, make sure you bury that head deep, 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 and then pour one out for your homie. Well, she brought another hammer with her because she wanted to like break the head up. And she said, she said a prayer and she burned the plastic bag that the head was in and the school bag. So did she break the head up more? I think so, but you'll know my, I think so in a minute. Okay. Okay. So 10 days after he was murdered, some people saw, if this isn't me, some people saw a leg with a sock on it floating. Oh, my God. <laughs> what the Bobby socks going on over there? So, 
a leg was found with a sock bobbing in the water. So they put some divers down there to see like, okay, well, what the fuck is this? Who is this? So they found a body in seven different parts. And it was through the media that they actually were able to identify who he was because people recognized the t-shirt that was on his torso. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So his head and penis were never found. That's why I say, um, I don't know if she did that or not. Yeah. Okay. Long story short, Linda confessed, Kathleen fled, and it took them three years basically to find her. Linda was found guilty of manslaughter and Charlotte was found guilty of murder because Charlotte was the one that like legit did it. Mm-hmm. So Charlotte got a mandatory life sentence. Linda got 15 years. Well, Kathleen ended up being charged as well, like given false information, assisting with the cleanup, yada, yada, yada. And so she got five years in prison for her part. So just a little bit about just the like, again, we talk about this all the time, but the domino effect that happens after a murder. So John, Kathleen's husband, ended up dying by suicide by hanging himself when the, his daughters were charged. Mm. Nobody, I mean, he was not involved. Yeah. But I guess it was just too much for him, his daughters being charged with murder. In the process of, like, like before Linda's confession and all, she attempted suicide with self-mutilation, you know, cutting and all. And she had to go to a psychiatric hospital. I feel like we've talked a lot about Linda, but I feel like Charlotte is more kind of the ringleader, like the alpha. She's had some interesting things happen in prison. In 2008... Photographs were released of her in prison holding a knife to the throat of a male inmate. And so I don't know if it was like staged to be like, oh, look, Scissor Sisters, even though, by the way, they hate the name. So that makes me want to call them that more. But so I don't I don't know if she was like legit doing something to this guy or if it was like just like a publicity thing. She also was caught in the act having sex with one of the corrections officers. I mean, extra commissary. Mm-mm-mm. Well, all this stuff was talking about how they had been keeping an eye on this guard because they, like, it was rumored that they were having a sexual relationship, which, of course, is, I mean, in, like, porn, it's sexy, but in real life, yeah, it's so fucked up. Right. But. Well, not only in porn, but, like, in like fantasy. You yeah. Know I mean? God, you don't have to take it all the way to the ranch. We can do Wentworth. True. And a lot of this stuff was saying, like, because they were caught in the act, there's no denying that they were having a sexual relationship. And so they were like, he's going to get all this punishment. He's going to be fired. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. He ain't going to jail? So I guess that's not a law there, maybe. Y'all let me know. But... In the States, it's against the law for, well, I guess in some states. I don't fucking know. I'm not an attorney. But it is against the law for a corrections officer to have a sexual relationship with an inmate because they're considered a vulnerable population. They 
are unable to give consent because what mm. you going to do? You're going to turn down a corrections officer. You're you can't. How how are you going to? They'll right. make your life miserable. So even if you didn't want to, you got to kind of thing. Right. And so because they're unable to give consent, it's considered rape. Makes sense. So, sorry if I missed this detail, but when they stabbed him and cut him, was it with scissors? It was with a knife. So, I'm not really sure why they call them scissor sisters, but that's just what they call them. Like, when they cut him up? I guess so, but one thing said they used, like, a butter knife. Oh, fuck. Yeah. I don't don't know, though, because, again... So many articles said so many different things. Okay. Just wondering. I was like, did I miss that detail that it was scissors? Yeah. I think it's just because he was dismembered, like cut up, quote unquote. So that's their story. Wow. And it's it's considered one of the most gruesome murders like in Dublin's history. Wow. But it's just, there's so many layers to this story. Yeah. With... Domestic violence and the cycle of abuse and substance abuse as a coping mechanism and just, I mean, just layer upon layer upon layer. There's not one crime. It's so heartbreaking just on all fronts. Yeah. But vigilante justice is not justice. Donna disagrees. I disagree. I just can't, I just can't advocate killing someone, you know, it's just so heartbreaking. And I think that. We are learning more and more about the cycle of abuse and how people process it and the ways in which they finally do leave. Like like I said, you know, it on average takes seven times, which means that there are some people that it takes way more than that. There are some people that it takes way less than that. It's an average. And so I feel like it's not this like cookie cutter answer of how to get out of a situation in which you're being abused. And it's so easy to say, just leave, just do this, just do that. But it's not that simple. No. Well, honestly, I feel like some of that kind of goes with some of my stories, too, when it's like a haunted house and they're tormented. Mm-hmm. And we're like, just move. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, if it's doing this, like, just move. But they have all their money into this house or they, you know, like, and- they have nowhere to go. And these people had nowhere else to go mm-hmm. to their whole life had, you know, like been not great. Well, and also we're hearing the whole story in an hour or 30 minutes or one news article, whereas the abuse or like you said, the experiences in the house are happening over months, years, decades. It's yeah. not all happening in this one 15 minute article that you're reading. And so you have good days. You have days that they're not abusive, that they're nice, or you have days that the ghosts leave you alone and all of that. And so when it's spread out in that amount of time, it doesn't seem quite as bad. It's doable. You know, it's like when you have pain from something and you're like, it slowly progresses worse and worse and worse. And once it's finally gone, you're like, God damn, I was really hurting. How did I live like that? You yes. know, and it's like, well, because it progressed there and you had no other option. So you did what you had to do. Yeah. And that's the exact same thing. That's so true. Well, I hope your story isn't so sad. Well, no, it's worse. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's worse. I can, mm-hmm, it's worse. Oh, fuck. Okay. Hit me with it. Okay. So we all know that when early settlers, when they came over here to North America, 
The common thought for people who were behaving oddly or anything against the norm was that that person was more than likely possessed or a witch. Mm -hmm. And since you did a possession last week, the fuck is this story going to be about? (laughs) Well, then, as we go into the next century of colonial America, people were no longer being burned at the stake, per se, But still, the treatment was terrible, beyond terrible. Usually, the people who were considered, quote-unquote, insane were imprisoned with criminals. And not the criminally insane, but, like, all types of criminals. Mm -hmm. They were stripped naked, chained to walls, (gasps) and left to be covered in their own feces. Oh, God. And it didn't matter what season it was or anything. Because they were all thought to be disposable. Criminals, if you were quote-unquote abnormal, like you're less than. Why do we care? Ugh. This story's gonna piss me the fuck off, isn't it? Yep. It's really not as bad as the others I've covered, but it's still. It's the whole thing. All right. Well, now, if you're lucky enough to have family who were quote-unquote kind enough to take responsibility for you... You were not subjected to prison. However, it wasn't out of the goodness of their heart because mostly they were trying to protect their public image Mm -hmm. or, like, they can't have their family name tainted. Right. So these families were later found out to lock their problematic family members in attics, secret places like sheds. And sometimes even holes in the ground, which I'm guessing are like root cellars. Yeah. Not like your scissor sisters that just were like, I have a knife. Let me dig a hole. Yeah. You know what I mean? But still shitty nonetheless. Literally. Because. Yeah. Probably same situation. Left to be covered in their own feces. Well, if you think about your girl that you covered. That was in France. Yeah. The attic. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was just because her mama didn't want her to marry somebody. Yep. Because it would be a less than person. In their eyes, yes. Yeah. So something needed to change, obviously. And luckily for humanity, Dorothea Dix existed. She was a teacher, a nurse, and a social reformer in her spare time. In the 19th century, she was super committed to improving the treatment of mentally ill people. She did a lot of amazing stuff, like she opened a private school at the age of 15 for young girls, and that's when, like, education Mm -hmm. wasn't important for females. Right. And she did this, and she didn't have a lot of education herself, but, like, at 15, she did this. Wow. Also, I'm pretty sure she was an occupational therapist, or either was, like, one of the founding fathers of occupational therapy. Hold, please. So she she wasn't an occupational therapist, but I was right. She was one of the, like, founding fathers, basically, because of the work she did with mental health. And that's where OT started, meaningful occupations for people who are in institutions. Very cool. But what we really owe her for, other than Carrie, for, like, owing her for a job. And a shit ton of student loan debt, but I digress. <laughs> Is for, in 1841, she visited a jail in Cambridge, Mass. She saw the mentally ill exposed to those treatments, like I mentioned before. And she was like, oh, fuck no. This is terrible. If no one else will care for them, I will. 
And so she dedicated her life to improve the treatment of the mentally ill. However, I will end her story on a sad note because Dorothea was so devoted to improving other people's lives that she suffered some in her own life, like several mental breakdowns. And she soon admitted herself to Trenton Hospital, which was like the first state hospital that she had opened. And she lived there for the rest of her life in a private apartment until she died six years later in 1887. But you know, it's almost like her path led her to take care of herself in the future. Yeah. So I said all of that to lead up to what we're going to talk about today. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in West Virginia. And it took a while to build from 1858 to 1881. And it's known for many things, which I will talk about. But one of them is being the largest hand-cut stone masonry building in North America. Well, no wonder it took so long to build. (laughs) Right? Well, there's other issues, but like, uh, what? I mean, fucking the Flintstones built faster than that. (laughs) It was built following a plan called the Kirkbridge Plan, and it's after a man who designed this more open structure. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like a bat. So Kind of like a what? Like a bat. Okay. But like flutter, flutter, not hit bat. The shape. Yeah. But it had long wings built in each direction for the structure to get light and fresh air. So the halls had like 12 foot ceilings and windows on both sides. So there's a cross breeze. So one more reason other than, you know, like hand cut stone, one more reason it took so long to build was a little thing called oh the Civil War. Oh. Yeah. So in 1861, The asylum wasn't completed, but had some walls, and one of the wings was completed. So that became Camp Tyler, and it provided barracks, it provided stables, etc. So it was, like, super important. And there were a lot of different raids on it, so it was basically capture the fucking flag, and it changed hands several times depending on who won the raids. And through all of that... The asylum was stripped of all of the supplies it had stored up for the first patients that it was anticipating. So no food, no clothing, no blankets. But at the end of the war, the completion of the construction was a priority. In 1863, it was renamed before it even opened its doors. It was now known as the West Virginia Hospital But then it later changed its name to Weston State Hospital. It was built to house 250 people. Each would have their own room, small room, but privacy, huge windows, and a view. Their own room? That's huge. No, it's a small room, but... (laughs) The concept is huge. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The whole grounds of the asylum... Super expansive, and it said that they cover 666 acres. Dun, dun, dun. You know, today I looked at the air conditioner thing at work, and it was it said it was 66.6 degrees in there. And you said, damn, I'm working at hell. But they had a working farm, a dairy, their own water system, a gas well, and a cemetery. The fuck is a gas well? 
natural gas that they drilled to find? I don't fucking know. That's just what I'm I'm assuming. Your girl over here could not have survived colonial times. (laughs) Just you wait. Well, it was going to be a peaceful home for those who were displaced by their families or suffering from their abnormalities, quote unquote. However, I would not be covering it if it was all rainbows and butterflies. In 1881, the stigma of being mentally ill was bigger than ever, and anyone could be pronounced mentally ill. You mean if I just wanted to take over your property or your wife or husband or what have you, I could just be like, hey, by the way, they're insane. Yep. Okay. So here's some of the reasons. Asthma, epilepsy, rabies, tuberculosis, being kicked by a horse, (laughs) vicious vices in early life, seduction, egotism, bad whiskey, indigestion, loss of arm, shooting of daughter, doubt of his mother's ancestors. Um, what? Mm Mm-hmm. And because we know that women have no rights at this point. So it's like if the men wanted their wives out of the way for them to have another person, they could. They could just drop them off and be like, troubles, marriage troubles, you know, whatever. I'll keep telling you some more. Or if they just married this woman to get her inheritance. Oh. You know, get her lock her up, and then you go about your life on her whole fucking money and shit. Oh, Okay. So lock her up and then go fucking fuck on her dime. Yeah. So some other things that were pretty much geared toward women. Change of life. Menstrual problems. Childbirth. Childbirth? Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be... That she can't have kids. Maybe she has postpartum. Mm-hmm. You know, whatevs. Any political or religious excitement. <laughs> Disappointed love. Death of sons in war. Domestic trouble. Laziness. Or novel reading. Like novel reading or like novel reading? I don't know. Either way, it's really dumb. Wow. So, don't have any passions. Don't think for yourself. Don't have natural bodily conditions. Don't have tragedy strike, like your child dying. <laughs> I know. Whiskey? Bad whiskey. Meanwhile, we're a hop, skip, and a jump away from prohibition. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, and all I can think about is, again... The Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. I'm like reading this, and then you see Handmaid's Tale, and I'm like, we are like right in the middle of this. Like, oh, look at how crazy this was in the past. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, oh, look at how that's so like futuristic that it would never. Mm, but like, either way, the women are getting fucked. Well. That 250, that capacity really didn't mean anything. Well, shit, the whole population could end up there. Mm -hmm. Basically, 10 times that at Mm -hmm. its peak in the 1950s (gasps) 
at 2,500 people. Holy shit. So much for a private room. Right. Because the hospital couldn't keep up. So all of these, like, grand plans just failed. Patients were crammed together. Sometimes they were, like, four or five to a room that was, again, intended for one person. Holy shit. Sometimes patients would have to sleep on the floor. It could be in freezing rooms because they didn't have any furniture or any heat. And the patients who had beds, because there were so many to a room, they would have to sleep in shifts if they wanted a bed. Yeah. Well, even the food sources couldn't keep up because they were self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Well, and now the patients are malnourished, and that only makes their mental state worse. Mm-hmm. Because, again, when basic needs aren't met, such as food, water, safety, housing, all of that, you can't address the other things, such as, you know, their mental illness, if they actually had one. Right. There's no way you can address all that when the basics that provide security aren't met. Yeah. Well, word got around that shit was not what it needed to be. Mm-hmm. And so the Charleston Gazette actually sent in a crew to investigate and to do an expose. They saw all of it. They saw that rooms and halls, you know, had as many beds as they could hold and as many beds as they had. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the same beds were being used by multiple patients, so they would have to sleep in shifts. Sanitation was at an all-time low. Mm. The windows that were, like, the source of, like, you know, just cheerfulness Mm -hmm. in everything, because it was clear and bright and open, they were now covered with grime. (gasps) The wallpaper was peeling And if it hadn't started to, like, disintegrate on its own, patients would tear it because, I mean, they're they're literally sitting there, like... With nothing to do. Yeah. Which only worsens, again, if they actually had a mental illness. It only worsens their symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then, honestly, for the people who didn't, they probably are literally being driven mad in a place with nothing to do, with no sleep, with no food, no blah, blah, blah. Yep. Fucking morons. Well, if the staff said that a patient was unable to be controlled, they could lock them into cages (gasps) in the open spaces. And that would make more room for people to have beds who were better behaved. But sometimes they would just do it if they didn't like the person or, you know, whatever. And sometimes... They would do that for weeks. Oh, my God. So if the living conditions weren't bad enough, we all know treatments were not the best. Those included ice water baths, which, yes, like, I mean, athletes do it now, but that... Sounds terrible. That, oh, gosh. Like, when I watch it on TV and stuff, I'm like, oh, my God, just to... When they're having to sit in there, mm-hmm. that those first five minutes have to be torture. Then your body just, like, goes numb. Mm. But then getting out of it, oh, God, no. Bloodletting, mm. we all know that's not my 
it's not my bag. What the MK Ultra is going on? Insulin coma therapy. Oh God. Yeah. Just add LSD and there we go. I'm guessing a little electroshock therapy somewhere in there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Lobotomies in there somewhere. Oh, just wait. They would do those confinement cribs. Oh. Confinement cages. All the things. Electroshock therapy, like you said. Wait, confinement cribs. Does that mean that there were kids there? There were kids. Oh shit. They had it from kids all the way up to like geriatrics and people who had Alzheimer's. And they had a wing for the criminally insane. So, I mean, they literally had the gamut of people and then all the rest of the people, you know, the the people who were just left there, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's bad. Well, like you said, they did have lobotomies. And it was the ice pick lobotomy. Oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. And it was performed by Dr. Walter Freeman, who's known as the father of the lobotomy. Hmm. He would travel from hospital to hospital so much that he called his car the Lobotomobile. What the fuck? Like, at what point do you go, oh, these aren't working? Yeah. Well, so if you don't know what that is, it's where this doctor would shove an ice pick through the patient's orbital socket. That's the eye. Mm-hmm. Use a hammer to force it to sever the connective tissue in the brain's prefrontal cortex. In some cases, it calmed down the patient. But almost in all cases, it had the patient where they were incapable of doing a lot of things. They basically had severe brain damage. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they couldn't feed themselves or dress themselves. I mean, they would literally be sitting there and drool. Mm-hmm. Surprised they could even sit there. Or they would die. They would die through the procedure. Mm-hmm. Because they weren't put to sleep. Oh. Lobotomies were so common at that asylum that during a two-week period in 1950s, One doctor performed 228 ice pick lobotomies. What the fuck? That's almost the same number of people that should be at that place. Right. Right. 1950? Oh, lobotomies were still being done in the 80s. That's baffling to me. Dr. Freeman, this is very lucrative for him. Oh, of course. Because husbands could be like, She's got the depression, you know, and Mm -hmm. he's like, okay, tick, 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 tick. She's all good. And then they're like, she's not doing anything. Send her to the asylum. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, oh, but he would charge like $100 or something each time. And then other people could watch him do it sometimes. Oh, my God. So then he could charge Mm looky-loos for their creepy fantasies. Yeah. In a 2010... L.A. Times article by Jay Jones. Jay writes about the medical center in the asylum, and he interviewed a tour guide there, and her name's Andrea Lamb. She said that there was a woman who began her nursing career in 1939 at this asylum. She was 18 years old, second day of work, and they were like, okay, this male patient needs to go to the medical center. 
So she's like, okay. Well, Dr. Freeman was there and he was like, okay, you wait here. I'll be right back. And so like just a few minutes, didn't take that long. He came back out and was completely different. She had no idea who Dr. Freeman was at the time. Mm -hmm. Did not know he was going for a lobotomy, you know, just didn't expect him to be completely different. She said that she, quote, brought back the perfect patient. Like, she's making fun of that. Like, Mm -hmm. he's not perfect. He would feed himself, dress himself, and go to the bathroom by himself. But he would never have any emotions again. Oh, my God. Isn't that heartbreaking? (sighs) Wow. However, it wasn't always torture being done by staff or anything. It could be patient-on-patient crimes. And one time, there were two patients that had a roommate. So it was three guys in this room. They attempted to hang the third roommate. Oh, my God. By using bed sheets. Oh, my God. But it he was still breathing. It failed. And so they were like, okay, we're still going to kill him. Like, how can we do it? They put him to the ground, put the bed frame on his head, and jumped on it. <gasps> Until the bed frame touched the floor. Holy fuck. Yeah. So his head was crushed. And you want to know why? He snored? Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Holy shit. I would have died. Yeah, me too. Holy shit. (sighs) I wonder what those two guys were in for. You know what I mean? Like, were they... Like, yeah, one of the, like, criminally insane, or did they truly have some sort of mental illness, or were they just, like, I don't know, they tripped and fell one day? Wow. Yeah. Well, and there were also female patients who would be raped by male patients mm. and guards. I was going to say, and staff, too, I'm sure. And there were female staff members who would be raped as well. Like, what the fuck? I know. What the fuck? Then a lot of employees were attacked by patients and they would plot, you know, Mm -hmm. to get the employee alone and then attack. It's it's like a prison. Mm -hmm. Well, then one evening a nurse went missing and no one noticed for two months. What? Mm -hmm. And her body was found underneath... A staircase, and it was just like in one of the unused like corridors. But yeah, and can you imagine then what it smelled like then if no one noticed? I mean, nobody. No, I mean, like, how do you? Okay, even if you work in a place that has fifty thousand employees, someone will notice you're not there. You work with at least a handful of people on a daily basis. How in the actual fuck did it go two months? Unless it was the people who do work with her on a daily basis that did it to her. Could be. I mean, shit. It's not like they fucking had direct deposit. Hey, uh, Betty hasn't come and picked up her check in two months. I mean, true. They all, like, live there, who Mm -hmm. work there. But if you... I, I mean, I don't know, but I'm just trying to think, like, if there were... Like, a group of 
four nurses who worked together if like they would sign each other in on certain you know what I mean? Like if people had each yeah, other's but if backs. You were, but if you were that close with someone that you were like clocking them in and out, which don't do that. But if you were, they would notice you missing. Yeah, I don't know. Also, if this place is so fucking cramped for space, why they got a corridor they're not using with a dead body last in there for two months? Right. In 1992, the Charleston Gazette published another article being like, shit's still not better. <sighs> yeah. That same year, they were able to document one of the patients dying after he had gotten a fight with another patient. And then another one died by suicide, and his decomposing body was not found for over a week. Okay. Inmates, people in, like, state hospitals like that, you're going to have the fights. You're going to mm-hmm. have that kind of – that's typical. Even the occasional, as much as it's you hope that it doesn't happen, someone will die by suicide. Yeah. But to fucking not find that body for a week – were they getting their medicine? Were that you know what I mean? Like there's so many yeah. things. Did nobody walk past their room, or were they too busy attacking the other clients? Right. Well, the hospital was officially closed in 1994. Holy shit! Isn't that wild to think about? 1994. That's like present day. You yeah. know, New Kids on the Block was a thing. Girl, you know it's true. It said by the time that the hospital closed, the only part that had been expanded to, you know, accommodate people was the cemetery. What? Mm-hmm. Was not expecting that. And was it still the same number of people there? And did they go by any fucking regulations? <laughs> okay, so hauntings. Of course, we have... All the little ambient sounds, like mm-hmm. moaning and groaning, wheels, like squeaky wheels from the gurneys and the wheelchairs going down the halls. Workers have quit because they've heard this kind of stuff and they're like, uh, no one else is here but us. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. Well, this is what you get when there's that much fucking trauma in one spot. Yeah. People on the staff have seen ghosts who walk through walls. Which, I, God, I've just never, I don't know what I would do if I ever saw that. To be like, he just came from the wall. I don't know why that's a big deal to me, but like. Um, I know what I would do. Pass the fuck out. <laughs> Fainting goat. A lot of people say that they have seen a ball of light and it moves really quickly up and down the hallways. Doors open and close by themselves. They hear banging on the pipes. Which also reminds me of a prison, like, mm-hmm. that was their way of asking for help or something. Communicating in some way, yeah. yeah. But, you know, and what sucks about if there really are all these spirits still there, like, god dang, man. They had to deal with it in life and in death, you know? Right. It's just like, that's not fair. No. One doctor said that a ghost followed her home, but I... I couldn't find anything else about that. So I'm like, question mark, question mark. I used to say that a lot whenever I worked in hospitals. And like I'd go home and I'd see something out of my corner of my eye. And I'd be like, oh, well, somebody hitched a ride on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. 
On the fourth floor, there is a soldier named Jacob. He's been seen up and down the halls. And I mean, just a lot of other things in the Civil War section. It's been a lot of shadow people, misty forms, and they could hear the heavy boots. And again, tortured moans, Mm -hmm. which, oh, God, just breaks my heart. Here's something, a.k.a. Heine, hysterical laughter being heard from empty rooms. Mm. But, you know, just think about that maniacal laugh, you know, like you would see on The Joker. Yeah, that's scary. Oh, oh. if you remember back to Waverly Hills, there was a ghost called the Creeper. Well, there's also one here, and they say he's a phantom, which I think might be technically what he was in Waverly Hills as well. But the Creeper literally creeps on the floor, like crawls in like a snake, kind of like just slithers on the floor. What? Yes. And there is an episode of Paranormal Lockdown, and you can see a shadow behind them. And it's, oh, yeah. What? Yeah. Like, Creeper is a really good name for that. I picture like a, like an army crawl, but like a snake. A snake army crawling. Yeah, it's like a blob army crawling. Oh. And it's black. Blacker than black. In Ward 2 on the second floor... It's a spot where two patients died by suicide and then another patient was stabbed to death. And they've had EVPs saying, get out in that room. There's a ghost of a man named Big Jim who is said to haunt the third floor and he will respond like with flashlights and stuff like that. And I think he might be one of the people who murdered Dean. And that is the bed guy. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, I don't want to talk to him. Allegedly. I I don't know. Like, I saw somewhere it was like murdered a patient and I don't know. I was like, could be. I don't know. Also, tangent, but it's not okay to call guys big guy like that. I don't think. Yeah. If you wouldn't call a girl that because you wouldn't like, you know what I mean? For image, like, I just feel like that it's like we're mindful of like sizeism with, well, we're sort of. Mindful with sizeism with women, but not with men. And men can have just as many self-image issues as women. And so I don't think that it should be okay to call them. What is his name? Big Willie? Big Jim. Big Jim. Little Jim. Don't be calling them that. Why you got to comment on their size? (laughs) Agreed. Well, there was one criminally insane guy who was known as Slewfoot. His ghost is said to haunt a floor where he was slashed to death in a bathroom. Oh, shit. Yeah. And then those seclusion cells, like the cages and everything, there's this unnamed serial killer who haunts there. What? Yeah. There's this ghost named Ruth, and she is said to hate men. And she also did this while she was alive. Like, she just had this... Aversion? Yeah, to men. And she used to throw things at them. Well, now she still does to male visitors who are on the tour. 
I wonder if she was just abused, you know, like early in mm-hmm. life. She is generally on Ward 4. And one of the guides, Michelle Graham, she said that she is one of the spirits who will push people around if they call out her name. Oh, shit. So, like, she does not like to be engaged with. You know, she doesn't want to do the whole EVP session. She doesn't want it. She's basically you if you were a ghost. She'd be like, text me. Don't call me. Yeah, but you know I'm boy crazy, so. True. Some of the men have been pushed from behind. Some have been pushed so hard that they've fallen to the floor. Damn. Sometimes doors will open up and hit them in the face. Oh, my God. Yeah. They say Dean is the guy who was killed with the bedpost. Mm-hmm. That horrific. Oh, his ghost still haunts the room that he was brutally murdered in, but he will he will talk sometimes. There's another spirit who is thought to be a victim of a stabbing incident, and that spirit tugs on the pants of people who are walking by, and they said it's like he's trying to get help. Or like a kid. There is a kid. Well, I was going to say, I, I was actually just thinking that a second ago. I wonder, like... Was the abuse the same for the kids? Because you said there were cribs, but you hadn't really touched on the kids. Well, one other thing before I get to the kids. There's also said to be um, a spirit of a nurse who worked there, and her name's Elizabeth. And doors are, like, left open and everything by her. And it's like she's still doing her nightly rounds. Mm. I do not want to work in the afterlife. I don't want to work in this life. You're not wrong. I mean, I'm going to preface that universe. True. Yes. With, you know, I ain't trying to something happen to me. Very true. I just want to have lots of money where I don't have to. (laughs) Bob Fulton wrote an article for the Indiana Gazette in 2017. He was doing a late night paranormal tour. And he said that he was on the third floor and it was the violent men's ward. And he was just doing like... An EVP session, like he just dabbling. And so he asked, why are you here? Well, later he was listening and he heard a reply and it said manslaughter. Then he said that he was in the southern wing of the fourth floor. And there was a man named Jesse Albright who was a patient. And he was in there because he was a recovering alcoholic. Apparently he had some heart issues as well. And he ended up dying from a pulmonary embolism while he was taking a bath. Oh, shit. So one of the people who were in the tour with him said that they heard someone whisper Jesse in their ear. Wow. When they're in that room. And then they'll communicate with Jesse. And normally it sounds like he's hitting a pipe or one of the bathtubs in Mm. response. Then there was another patient in 1884. Her name's Jane Harvey, and she died by suicide. She hanged herself using one of her bed sheets. And mm. on the tours, people who go in her room have felt strangled. Mm. And then they also have some EVPs that they've called where people have asked her if she was a patient or if she worked there. And she said that she was a patient and that she had died by suicide. But the most famous spirit that is at the asylum 
is a little girl named Lily. I love that name. She appears in a white dress and is thought to be nine years old. Okay. I know I said this one time on a an episode, like a bonus episode on Patreon. Mm-hmm. Talking about don't fucking wear a nightgown ever. But like, don't wear a white dress either. Right. <laughs> unless it's like your wedding day. You know, you wear a white dress or a fucking nightgown. You donezo. Because that's the only attire acceptable in the afterlife. Right. I know. Lily is believed to have been born inside the asylum and she passed away there. There's a show called Ghost Stories and I saw it on YouTube. But it originally aired on the Travel Channel in 2010. All these ghost stories are on Travel Channel. Right, yeah. It used to be sci-fi, though. But Travel Channel is like, Mm -hmm. I see you, Investigation Discovery. (laughs) Right. I see you, Headline News. And I raise you, Paranormal. You know? Mm -hmm. There was a psychic named Tammy Wilson. And she said that she's the first person who got Lily as being her name. And... When she was talking to her, she said that her mom's name started with an E. And her mom was the only child from a really wealthy, like, she-she family in England. Well, how in the fuck did they end up there? Well, England, and then they settled in North America here. Well, she got pregnant, so Mm -hmm. they were like, gotta go. So here she is in the asylum. Gotcha. Well, then later... E was told that her parents were killed in an accident, and so they couldn't come back and get her after the baby was born. And so she was going to be at the asylum. So she gave birth, and, like, all the staff kind of was a mother to Lily, too. The producers of Ghost Stories did find some patient records from 1920s, and There was a first name beginning with E who was admitted to the hospital while pregnant and later gave birth in the hospital. She's thought to have died from pneumonia. So at least it wasn't anything like tragic. A lobotomy. Right. Unless she was in one of those fucking cages and freezing and got pneumonia. Okay. Oh, no. I'm just saying. Well, she loves people. So she eagerly tugs on clothes. She loves to take candy. If you offer her candy, she will take it. Sometimes she will slide her hand and hold the hand of ladies on the tour. I know. so sad. I know. She will respond like turning on and off a flashlight. She'll roll the ball back and forth. She'll bounce it back and forth. So it's not just like, oh, you're rolling it Mm -hmm. and then it rolls back. Like, no, if you bounce it, it'll bounce back, bounce to the other person. Like someone played with like three different people and, you know, like it would just constantly go to different people and stuff. Wow. So her room is stocked with lots of toys, but there's this one music box that she loves and it's pink and white. And when you open it, it plays a little lullaby. And there's a miniature ballerina that dances around, that spins around. I used to have one like this. Mm -hmm. Did you? No, fuck no. My parents didn't buy me shit like that. Oh, my gosh. Really? Really. My God, I had one and I loved it. No, but I always loved going to people's houses who did have one. (laughs) I also had one that was... You had multiple? Well, I had one that was Cinderella. Of course you did. It was more like a kit and caboodle kind of thing. 
But like you'd open it and it would be when her and the prince are dancing together. Oh my God. So this is love. And that's what it would play? Mm-hmm. Well, that has to be cranked up. I was going to say, if you had one, you knew. But like it has to be cranked Damn. up. <laughs> has to be cranked up on the bottom. But sometimes like it'll just come on by itself. And like if it's like slowing down, dying, it cranks right back up. Wow. That same show, Ghost Stories, had a local historian named Shelly Bailey, and she said that she has encountered Lily, and she would leave her gifts every time. Well, one time she had Cracker Jacks. Well, they put the Cracker Jack box on the sink. Well, they're all, like, sitting around trying to figure out what they're going to do next, and the Cracker Jack box falls to the side, and then kind of moves and then falls into the sink, And then it's like, you can hear someone like rummaging around and it seems like, okay, like she's opening the thing. And she said that you could hear her chewing. What? Yeah. But look, I don't care if you're a fucking ghost. I don't want to hear you fucking chew. (laughs) Dead or alive. I don't want to hear you chew. (laughs) Well, she said that later on they were listening and they called an EVP and It said, thank you for the snacks. Oh. I know. But they also said that the box wasn't even open. So it's crazy. That's bizarre. But that's similar to like all the other stories where we've heard where people take people cigars, take people alcohol, take people, you know, like gifts to different spirits to either get them to do something or be nice or what have you. Yeah, but they don't hear them. But they might smell the cigar. True. But is it what Creep Mom said about it being hot? And No, because it's not like, hey, here's your cigar. And then like two seconds later, you smell it. True. I mean, the temperature didn't change that much right then. True. One more thing. And here's a little thing for you true crime peeps out there. Charles Manson was a patient here once. What? Mm-hmm. He was younger. You buried the motherfucking lead up on this one. (laughs) He didn't stay there long or anything, but he was, like, in middle school. Whoa. Mm Mm-hmm. Holy crap, that's fascinating. Yeah, so he's their most famous patient. But again, to think, like... He got out of, like, all the people who went there and died there and all the things, and Manson got out. (laughs) A motherfucking cult leader got out. You know what I mean? Well, they didn't know he was going to be a cult leader. I'm sure there were signs. (laughs) But if you think about it, I mean, they still had overcrowding and all of that when he was there. Mm -hmm. So. Oh, he saw some shit. Yeah. Ooh. I just try to put myself in that, in the day-to-day living conditions and just how awful. I can't. I mean, we know the big things, and not even all the big things, but we know some of the big things that happen. But again, it's those day-to-day, like, nuanced things that, for some, were probably just as bad as the big things, and we don't have a clue. Right. How they were treated by other patients there, or, you know, wow. Well, that was heavy in a different way. I think, too, because, like, it was very heavy, but it's different because it's like, there's not a name like there's not a face to the Mm -hmm. names to the 
to the atrocities that happened. I mean, there is a little bit with now that we know like Manson, but for the most part, you hear, okay, well, there was a little girl named Lily. There was a, a ghost named Jimmy. But it's like almost like conceptual versus yeah. like a real human. Yeah. And so it's like while it's very heavy in the like the things that they went through, it's harder to empathize with them versus, say, what Kathleen went through. Yeah. I know that last episode we did the mental health check-in, but I feel like we need to at least acknowledge – with all of the topics of that we've covered this episode, like the domestic violence and issues with mental health, you know, all the things. So if you are in a situation in which you're not safe, you need help, there are shelters available, there is help available, please reach out to the people in your community, your friends, your family that love you and want to help you. Please reach out to them for help and don't stay in a situation in which you're not safe because you feel like there's no way out because there's always a way out. Remember, we love you and we support you and everyone in this community loves and supports you and you're strong and you can do it. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have time, please leave a review on Apple, Stitcher, all the places And I think we mentioned it before, but like you rating us certain stars, perfect. But if you can leave a review, it's even better. And it gets us, you know, out there in the podcast world so people can see us, all the things. And of course, keep sending us your stories, the sinister sightings. We love doing them weekly. More true crime, more paranormal, more ambient stories, or any sleeping aid, funny or, or scary. Hey, there's some scary shit out there that's like, I don't know how I didn't die. And you can send those stories to aparanormalchicks at gmail.com. Also, don't forget, if you want to do tickets for the True Crime Podcast Festival, use the promo code CHICKS. And remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get scared. scared.